Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today we're in week two of our series, What Do We Really Believe? And uh, we kicked this off last week, uh, really because this question, like what do we really believe as a community? It's a question that I've been asked a lot in the past year. And uh, I shared uh, this illustration last week. Somebody a lot smarter than me realized that if I took the glass out of this picture frame, I won't blind all of you. Uh, But what we said last week is that uh, when people come to church, whether it was back in our days as a church plant and and we were having launch team meetings and uh, trying to cast vision for who we're gonna become, or or maybe you're here for the first time today, whenever we walk into a church environment, everybody walks in kind of carrying a picture of what they believe church maybe ought to be like, maybe what church is all about, maybe it's based on their past church experience. And so one thing that we're trying to do over these weeks leading up to Easter is fill in the picture of who we are as Story Church and some of the things that we essentially believe. And uh, I mentioned last week, like it's a question that sometimes makes me a little nervous uh, because sometimes it's like the litmus test for people. They're like, do you believe the things that I think you should believe? And if you do, then I'll be a part of your church. And if you don't, then I'll call you a cult leader or a crazy heretic or whatever. And so it always feels like the stakes are kind of high. But uh, one thing that we shared last week as we kicked this off is we're not gonna like be fully comprehensive about everything that Christians believe or even everything that we believe as a church. In some ways, this is a series that we do every single week as we always try and share uh, what we believe and point back to Jesus and, and learn together. But what we're trying to do is look at some of the most easily confused or easily distorted aspects of our faith and look at some of the things that maybe make us a little unique as a church community uh, here in Peru specifically. Uh, But a few things to know at the start. I shared this last week. Um, It's important to know that we do believe some things. It's not just a free-for-all here. And and at the core of who we are as Story Church is this. We're a Jesus-centered community. Like, we think Jesus is the main thing. He's a big deal, and so we take our cue from him. Uh, Even as it relates to Scripture, we trust Scripture as it points to and reveals Jesus to us. And then if you want to get a little technical, I shared this last week as well. Uh, As far as, like, basic beliefs, uh, we would believe or or, or trust uh, something known as the Apostles' Creed, which is this statement that's been made for thousands of years. It's one of the earliest statements of faith that kind of outlines basic Christian belief. And if you already know about that stuff, you know what I'm saying. And if you don't know and you want to learn more, you can just look it up, and uh, it's pretty readily available. But outside of that, something I shared last week is that there's actually a diversity of perspectives and opinions outside of some of those main uh, essential tenets of what we believe as Christians. Uh, In our leadership team, even within our church, like, I won't do this, but I'd be willing to bet if I took a poll about some of the hot-button issues, you would see, like, all the different perspectives and opinions, and maybe you would get a little uncomfortable if you don't like, uh, like, division or anything like that. But I think it's a good thing for us as a church community to actually have diversity. And, And in fact, the church community was never designed to be a group of people who look alike, who think alike, who even act like all the time, but instead uh, we're supposed to be unified around who Jesus is and and around who he calls us to be. And and so outside of those essentials, uh, basically what I want you to know is this series, it's not about compliance. When we're talking about what we believe, it's not like believe this like I do or else. Uh, Instead, it's just an attempt to bring clarity and, and to prompt the conversation along the way. You're invited to wrestle with these ideas in the context of community. And last week we shared that this isn't a new thing for story to have this posture, but this is actually the posture that the people of God have had from the very beginning because uh, the nation of Israel was founded by a man named Jacob. 
But Jacob got his name uh, through this encounter with God where uh, he had sent his family across the river and and then he like wrestled with this man. It's kind of a weird story if you read it in scripture. It's like this man just shows up and they wrestle and it's like, what happened? Is this how things were back then? But uh, Jacob wrestles with this man and and at the end, Jacob actually kind of beats this guy and he says, hey, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And then here's what the man asks Jacob. He says, what is your name? And Jacob replies, Jacob, he answers. And the man says, well, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans, and you've overcome. And that's an important thing for us to understand is that like baked into the very beginning of the nation that grew to be the nations of God's people, Israel, was this idea of wrestling with God. This idea of of struggling with God and with people and wrestling with our faith and and working through it. And so as the children of Israel, the Jewish community carried on this legacy of wrestling with their faith and asking questions of their faith and really asking this question, well, what do we really believe and how does it really play out in our world today, year over year over year? And that's what we want to be a part of as a church as well. And that's Again, why I like to refer to what we do together as conversations, hopefully conversation starters, where even though it's a one-way conversation right now, you take these ideas and you wrestle with them yourself. You think critically and you talk about them in the context of a loving community. But to illustrate uh, the tensions that we're wrestling with together, I think more than ever before in our world, I actually want to share with you two triangles. And these are images, uh, (laughs) I I told our team earlier, like, If you didn't think we were a cult last week, I'm going to show you like symbols this week, so it's getting weird. But uh, these are actually symbols that have uh, been around for a really long time. And the first one I want to show you is this image uh, that's called the triquetra. And the triquetra, you don't have to know what that means, but it's actually one of the oldest uh, spiritual symbols in the world. Multiple different religions have actually kind of clung on to this uh, image or this symbol, Uh, but it it comes from the Celtic uh, tradition, and eventually Christians moved into good old Ireland and and started influencing the people in that region, and they kind of grabbed onto this image of the triquetra to reflect what we talked about last week, to reflect the image of the Trinity, that God in this unique way is three distinct persons, but also one in and of himself, and that that God is the creator and the father of everything, and that he made his world and he called it good, but God is also the son, that the maker of the universe, like the God of all of the cosmos, chose to enter into human history in a body as the person, Jesus, and that God is also spirit, that God walks with us, and he's actually a part of this project of who we're becoming as individuals and as a community. And so this symbol, uh, the triquetra, It's this historic uh, image, and for our purposes today, you could almost view it through the lens of, like, the roots of our faith. This is, like, the stuff that has been for a long time, the Apostles' Creed, right, those traditional beliefs, that historic faith that Christians have carried for thousands of years. And and that's a part of the equation of what we're doing together today. But there's another triangle I need to show you that kind of explains some of the chaos of our world, and that's this sign of the delta, And the delta, if you don't know, it's used often uh, in math equations or in the finance world or in medical charts uh, to represent change. The delta represents a constantly changing reality. And I probably don't have to work very hard to convince you that we're living in a time of immense change. 
right? Like, so if you feel like the past couple of years, you're like, man, am, am I crazy or is the world going crazy? You're not alone. And in fact, that's kind of how uh, human history tends to play out. Like sometimes there's this slow, lengthy, linear change where things just kind of gradually get different and grow and develop. And then there's these like snapshots in history where things accelerate quickly, where change is introduced at a rate that makes people feel like, oh my gosh, is the world going crazy? And, and I think uh, it wouldn't uh, be a stretch to say that we're living in one of those times right now. Right now, we are presented with more information and more stories all the time than most humans had throughout most of human history. Have you ever thought about that? We're confronted with more information, with more news, with more things to make sense of than most humans throughout most of human history would even encounter in their lifetime. Most humans would have had this kind of narrow existence where their news was maybe local and, and what they heard from other people in their communities. But we have access through digital technology to all kinds of information. And I think the challenge for us, I think the challenge for any and every faith community right now is to reconcile these two things. Like, what do we do with our historic faith in the context of an ever-changing world? And how do we respond along the way? And I think what happens in the church often is the church tends to have one of a few different responses. Sometimes uh, we simply avoid all that change stuff altogether. Right? Sometimes the church is like, no, no, our domain is the world of the historic faith, right? This is where we're supposed to focus. And so we spend all of our time there and we just like ignore everything that's happening out there in the world. And uh, this is why maybe sometimes you've gone to church and it feels like the pastor is from another world, right? It feels like they just like had him in a vault during the week and they rolled him out and they have him talk on Sunday. And you're like, what? are you not aware of what's going on in the world, right? Are you not aware of like the real stuff that we're facing? Because throughout the week, we're bombarded again with all this information, with the news cycle, 24 hours a day, with Facebook and Instagram and just all the stuff that we're trying to navigate together. And sometimes in church, we act like we can't talk about that stuff. So we just avoid it altogether. Others of us, we take it even a little bit further. And we don't just avoid talking about the changing world, but we actually attack it. We actually view all of that change as an enemy to faith as a challenge to our faith. And in this changing world that we live in, it's not just a distraction uh, to these communities, but it's actually a threat to the historic faith. And, and in those communities, this is where things like culture war Christianity shows up, which is alive and well today, uh, I hate to say. In fact, um, there's a lot of talk right, about cancel culture and uh, people just like shutting down other people. The sad news of our tradition to some degree is like Christians kind of introduced that to the world, at least in our recent world. Uh, I can remember as a kid, like some books you weren't allowed to read, or for me, like some CDs you weren't allowed to have. And some faith communities would actually have like book burning or CD melting parties where they would like have these big bonfires and you had to like toss all your sinful music into the fire and be done with it. And so sometimes we view culture as if it's the enemy, as if our job as people of faith is to defend our corner and to be rid of all these things that are challenging us along the way. And in these communities, questions are discouraged. Right? Critical thought isn't invited into the equation, and the world is framed as this scary, dangerous place that we should avoid altogether. And I'll be an equal opportunity offender today because sometimes faith communities do the polar opposite, and they don't retreat into the world of the historic faith. They don't attack uh, the changing world that we live in, but instead they just fully embrace it. Right? It's like we fully embrace all of the change and, and we just lean in. And in communities like this, uh, what can often happen is we start to assume that whatever the most recent thinking is, is the best thinking. Whatever the newest idea is, it is the best idea. And it can be easy for us to abandon our historic faith 
in favor of whatever is popular at the time or whatever is being uh, communicated widely throughout our culture. And here's what I would say. I would argue that all three of those postures miss out, that, that all three of those postures miss reflecting the fullest expression of the church as Jesus dreamed for it to be. And, and for story, none of these three postures are what we believe as a faith community. We don't want to just avoid the reality of our world. We certainly don't feel like it's our job to attack the culture or, or to put down other people. Uh, I'm not going to be burning any books or CDs anytime soon, if you're wondering. But it's also not our job to just fully embrace every new idea that comes our way. Instead, uh, here's what I think we need to do, and, and really what we're going to talk about uh, today and throughout the rest of this series, is I think that we, as a faith community, can actually assume a posture that sits right there in the middle, that just lives in the tension between the historic things that Christians have always believed and the ever-changing world with its very real questions and very real struggles. That our job as a faith community it is to be a group of people who stand in the gap, who hold on to the tension, who wrestle with it, and who discern and who work out together where God is at and what he's up to in real time in our real world today. And so that's what we're trying to do through this conversation. We're trying to hold both of those things, the historic belief that Christians have had for thousands of years and the realities of our everyday life and our ever-changing world. And what we're gonna talk about today, uh, the what we believe that we're gonna talk about, I think is set perfectly across this backdrop uh, because one of the aspects of belief where this tension is really obviously displayed centers around the concept of sin. And yep, you knew it was coming. You're like, oh, this is the week I chose to show up to, huh? Today we're going to talk about sin, and we're going to talk about what that really means uh, from a biblical perspective and, and what it really means for us to like work through it. But to be honest, nobody's excited for sin week in the series, right? Because sin is a loaded concept in the church. And in fact, for some of us, uh, maybe you have past church experience, and maybe for you, like sin was the primary thing you knew about the church because the church you grew up in, uh, it felt like all of the holiest people were like the sin police, who are on the lookout for somebody who wasn't living up to the standard of holiness. They had their rules, right? And you got introduced to those rules probably early on along the way, and you were told you should do this, and don't you dare do that. And if you ever slipped up, maybe you experienced condemnation from somebody who said you weren't good enough, who said you messed up, that you didn't uphold the standard, that you were a sinner. And here's what I would say today. It's that a faith that has its roots in behavior management, in sin management, is a faith that's so much lesser than the actual gospel, than the actual good news, than the actual vision for the church that Jesus always had. And if you've experienced that today, I want you to hear from a church leader that I'm sorry, because that is not the dream that God had for his faith community. And it's not the posture that God takes towards you moving forward. And I think the other thing with sin, like we've probably all seen it done wrong, right? We've seen examples of people uh, approaching this wrong, but we can also all probably agree that something's not right with our world, right? That something's broken in our world and you don't have to look very long. I mean, again, we have more access to more information and more news than ever before. And, and so we can see all these examples of natural disasters, right? Hurricanes and, and some of the crazy things that can happen in our world. We're exposed to images and examples of poverty, 
and homelessness uh, more than ever before. We can see what's happening in the world. We can see images and examples of violence and war. We're experiencing this right now with everything going on in Ukraine, right? We can see these crazy images, these crazy stories. And as we want to complain about our gas prices, like we can, if we're mindful, remember what's literally happening across the world right now for people as their world is turned upside down. And so we're exposed more and more and more with these images and these examples and these experiences that remind us that things aren't the way that they ought to be. Right? We can see them, and regardless of your posture about what caused it or what we should do about it, there's all kinds of examples in our world where we can say, that's broken. Right? That's not the way that it's supposed to be. And no matter how much good news there may be, there's always some bad news to remind us that things aren't the way that they ought to be, that something is wrong with our world. But in our conversation today, as we're talking about sin, I think it's really important for us to start in the right place. Because the thing that we need to remember as Jesus followers, that if you want to take seriously uh, the invitation to follow Jesus and to live out a growing faith in him, we have to remember that it hasn't always been this way. That even though our world is broken, even though our world is chaotic, and uh, whether it's personally or, or collectively, we can all give examples of ways that we've been wounded by the world. Uh, the truth is it hasn't always been this way. And last week, we introduced to you that uh, as we're talking about what we believe, we're not going to talk about it in terms of a creed or a system or a checklist that you must believe or else. But instead, I want to introduce you to what we believe through the context of a story, because I think that's what scripture is. It's ultimately this unified story that points to Jesus. And it's a story, as we said last week, that starts with a God who is love, not who is loving, not who shows loving behavior sometimes, but at his very essence, his very nature, he is love. He is this Trinitarian community of oneness. And remember last week we talked about uh, this like dance of love that God has always existed in and he invites each of us into as well. This one God in three persons. And this God who is love created a world that was good. He created this community that we are invited to be a part of. He created the heavens and the earth and all of the living things and he created people to join this loving community of his. And in the beginning, in God's kingdom, as it initially started, his kingdom was being realized on earth. And what that means is everything was perfect. Everything was as it ought to be. And there's a biblical word for this. We've actually talked about it here before, if you've uh, been paying attention. But it's the word shalom. It's not just like a greeting that people say in Aladdin, but shalom is actually this huge, really important concept to understand if you want to understand what God has been up to from the very beginning, and if you want to understand what God is still up to. In our world today, you have to understand shalom because shalom is this concept that means universal flourishing. It, it means wholeness. It means delight. Where all of our natural needs are satisfied and all of our natural gifts are expressed and lived out and abundantly active. That is the vision of shalom and that is what scripture tells us God created the world in. He made the world good. He made the world whole, and in the beginning, all of creation was functioning as the creator intended and designed, and there was harmony between the creator and the created. And the result of everything working the way God designed was mutual flourishing for everyone. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, there's a theologian named Cornelius Platanga, which that's a fun name, but he describes shalom in this way. He says, shalom is what we all long for. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And so where there is shalom, there's nothing lacking. 
right? There's no need for hierarchies and, and people to power up and, and fight against one another. There's no oppression in shalom. Every person is provided for and valued and treated equitably along the way. And shalom is what God's kingdom is intended to look like here on earth. And maybe you've experienced something that's kind of felt like that before, right? I mean, that's a big vision, it's a big dream, but maybe you've had a moment where you felt like, oh my gosh, like this might be as good as it gets. Maybe there's a moment in worship where you were singing your heart out and you weren't worried about the people around you or like, what do I sound like or whatever. Like you were just able to totally like open up your heart and lose yourself in that moment. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is it, right? Like, like I made it, this feels right to me. Maybe you've had an experience where you had a good friend or maybe a community of friends who you felt like you could be vulnerable with and you felt totally seen and totally accepted by this group of people. And for you, you were like, oh my gosh, I found it. Right? This is it. I can be myself, and I'm welcomed, and I'm accepted here. Maybe you've had this experience one time when you were serving. Right? You were meeting the needs of somebody else, whether it was on like a missions trip or, or maybe even in your everyday life. You were just kind of in your sweet spot, and you saw the power of what it looks like when you can use your gifts to meet somebody else's needs, and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I could do this all the time. Right? It feels incredible when we're in that spot, but there's this closeness or this rightness or maybe even a wholeness when we've had those moments where it's like, man, maybe this is the way that things have always been intended to be. The reason I want to start here as we're talking about sin, I mean, maybe you're like, hey, there's no sin in the equation right now. And the reason I want to start there is because it's important for us to understand that although things went wrong in our world, that from the very beginning, God's story begins with original blessing, not original sin. That God's story and our part in God's story actually starts with original blessing, not original sin. And there's this theological concept that is true in certain ways, and we're not going to get into the weeds of it too much, but I think it's kind of hijacked the story at times. Uh, this concept called total depravity, and it's a real fun one. Basically, the idea of total depravity is like we're all really bad, and none of us can keep it together. Like eventually all of us are going to mess up is the Cliff Notes version of total depravity you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, I'm bad, that's it. I'll pray and we'll go home, right? No, it, like it's not a fun place for us to camp out, but uh, this concept that has truth in it sometimes has been like hijacked and, and distilled down to the bullet points to where our appeal about faith in Jesus sometimes sounds like this. You're a sinner and you need a savior. So accept Jesus and go to heaven. And that's kind of it, right? This was hugely popular. You're a sinner, you need a savior, accept him, and be okay. And again, I'm not saying that's not true, but it's so important for us to understand that that's not where the story begins. That the story of God, as he relates to you, isn't you're a sinner, it's that you are a beloved child. It's that you are made to reflect and to reveal and to carry his very image, that you were created good. And theologian Brad Gray, uh, he wrote a book uh, a pretty new book called Walking the Text. And uh, he said this, that many of us in our faith communities, we've been conditioned to notice what's wrong with us long before we appreciate what's right about us. And I think that's the challenge as it relates to this conversation about sin is so often we're on like sin police mode. And even towards ourself, we're, we're easy and we're quick to find the things that are wrong with us. And we miss the original intention, the original design, the original value that God speaks over us. And so our conversation about faith and even sin as it relates to faith has to be rooted in the actual beginning, which says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It says that God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good. And that includes you. Right? God saw everything that he made, and he made you, and he made this world good. And God longs to restore you and to restore our entire world back to that intention, to that experience of shalom and wholeness and goodness. Uh, and unfortunately, the story doesn't end there, right? But it's important for us, before we jump into all the sin stuff, to understand that you, your first definition, the way that you were created was good, a reflector and a carrier of God's image. And no matter what you've done, and no matter where you've gone or what mistakes you feel like you've made, you can't stamp that image out of you. It, it was like baked in and boiled in and shaped into your very creation. You carry the image of the invisible God. But as I said, unfortunately, as the narrative unfolds, God's dream, God's plan for us, uh, shalom is shattered. And, and what we read as we keep going is in Genesis 3, a serpent approaches the very first people and starts to talk to them. And like, Maybe you're like me and you're like, that's weird, right? Like, why would anyone have a conversation with a snake? Because if a snake came up to me and was like, hello, I would be like, goodbye, and like, get out of Dodge. But uh, anyway, I, I don't fully, to be honest with you, understand the concept of the talking snake. And, and there's scholars and theologians who have debated, like, was there literally a serpent that literally had a human voice that like they could hear? Or, or is this like a metaphor or, or an allegory or something like that? But at any rate, the point is that evil here is personified, and the writer of Genesis chose to describe this evil as a serpent. And as the conversation goes, the serpent says this to the woman. She says, uh, sorry, that first part is what God said. That's the good part. But the serpent says, you will not certainly die to the woman. He says, for God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent tells the first woman that if she ignores God, that if she eats the fruit of this one particular tree, this only tree that God told her and told the man not to eat from, then she'll become like God. And I would be willing to bet if you've been in any church community, you've probably heard some version of this story before, right? The serpent shows up, the serpent tempts the woman, the woman gives in, takes the bite, she gives it to her husband as well. And like maybe you've heard the story like this, God had rules. Right? And, and the people, Adam and Eve, didn't obey the rules. So God punishes them for what they've done. And again, often that's our image of sin. Right? God had rules. We broke the rules. God punishes those who break the rules. And, and it's almost like humanity has been in the doghouse ever since this moment. Right? Like we're a bunch of rule breakers. And, and God's mad. And you better watch out or you better get right. And, and isn't that how we've heard the story? Here's the problem with that. It's that if we believe sin is only about rules and regulations, if we believe sin is only about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, then we miss the real tragic part of the story because the serpent is craftier than that in the conversation. He doesn't just get them to break the rules, but instead what he does is he introduces doubt about God's intentions into the people's mind. Right? He introduces this idea that, like, hey, if you eat this fruit, it's not that you're going to die. Right? It's not that you're going to be put to death or punished, but rather you're going to get something. Right? You're going to gain this special knowledge and, and you're going to really know good and evil. Like You're going to be like God and you're going to get it right. And God didn't command Adam and Eve not to eat from this tree because that knowledge is wrong or bad. 
knowledge of good and evil, right? That's not a bad thing to have a clear knowledge. And it's not that God doesn't ever want Adam and Eve to learn good and evil and to, to move forward. In, in fact, that's precisely what he does want for them. He just wants them to learn it in relationship with him. He, he wants them to learn this knowledge of good and evil his way and, and relationship and connection, God says, are actually the true way to know good and evil in a healthy way. In fact, the writer of Proverbs later is reflecting on what God wants for us and and what it looks like to live lives marked by wisdom uh, in trusting God. And they say this in Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what the serpent offers to Adam and Eve, it's like a shortcut to what God wants for them. It's not that he's offering them the wrong thing necessarily, but he's offering them something attractive in the wrong way. He's offering them shortcut to what God wants for them. And when they follow that path, instead of following God in relationship, then it fractures that connection between God and people. It, it fractures that connection that God established in the beginning, that shalom that God longed for, where everything is based in mutuality and shared connection. Does that make sense? Like, it's not that what the people gained was bad and they were rule breakers and they deserved to be punished. It's that they broke relationship with God. They didn't trust God. They didn't rely on God. They wanted to be independent from God. And so what do the people do once they realize what they've done? Well, it says then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They ran away and they hid from God. And in many ways, we've all been hiding ever since. We've all been running and we've been trying to hide what we feel like is the shameful part of us. They ate the fruit and their eyes were open and it takes them from unashamed to ashamed and aware. They were embarrassed and they were hiding. They moved from this childlike innocence to shame and to hiding. And uh, I don't know if you've been around a little kid recently. I have a little one that lives in my house, right? And here's the thing about little kids. They are naked and unashamed, <laughs> right? Like, in fact, my daughter, like when we're getting ready for bath time, she'll just be like, I'm Nikki. And I'm like, yeah, you are. Like, go for it. Right? That's how little kids are. And in fact, this is too much information, but that's what I'm here for. Uh, when I was a kid, I can remember my brother and I, as we were growing up for bath time, would run around the house like crazy, just like naked, crazy little boys. And uh, my parents actually like branded this whole experience. They called it the evil Nike show. <laughs> and I don't think it was evil. Okay. It wasn't weird. It was just crazy little boys. Like we would just run around the house naked because it was awesome. Right? Like we're, we're five and it's amazing. You can just live in the world. But for a second, like imagine what would have happened if in little like three-year-old, my daughter, who's like, I'm naked, or like little five-year-old me who is like, evil Nike show. What if you like were somehow able to download into our brains the sense of shame that a 21-year-old might carry? Wouldn't their posture instantly be like, I, I gotta get out of here, right? Wouldn't we probably run to their room and, and, and like cover up and hide and try and like just shield themselves from their embarrassment because they would know better. That's essentially what happens in this moment. And sidebar, if you want to get a jump on your Halloween costume shopping, uh, just free information, this is available for $19.99, uh, complete with fig leaves, and it's horribly uncomfortable. So <laughs> uh, back to our story. The serpent tricks Adam and Eve into diverting God's plan, into taking the shortcut to gaining wisdom. And they became like little kids who didn't have the shrewdness to understand the serpent's craftiness. And the consequences were disastrous. Here's how Parker Palmer, who's, who's an author and a theologian, says, 
uh, what happened next. He says, Adam and Eve were driven from the garden because the kind of knowledge that they reached for was a knowledge that distrusted and excluded God. Their drive to know arose not from love, but from curiosity and control, from the desire to possess powers belonging to God alone. And they failed to honor the fact that God knew them first. God knew them in their limits as well as their potentials. In their refusal to know as they were known, they reached for a kind of knowledge that always leads to death. So here's the point. Okay, here's what I'm getting at today. Here's what's important for us to understand about sin. It's that sin is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just about keeping the rules and and making sure we don't mess up along the way and making sure like we run and hide if we do. Instead, we need a bigger view that understands that sin is the culpable disruption of shalom. I'll say that again because culpable is kind of a big word. But like sin is the tangible disruption of the way God intended the world to work. That's what happens when we sin. It's when we go our own way. It's when we even go after good things in our own way apart from God. Or, Or like we talked about last week, Sin is when we break the divine dance, right? Sin is when we exit out of that community of love that God always wanted us to belong to. And in fact, the Greek word that's most often translated as sin, it doesn't imply like breaking a rule. It doesn't imply just going your own way even necessarily, but the like, clearest translation is to miss the mark. It's like an arrow that maybe was flying in the right direction, but was just a little bit off target, right? That's what sin in the original language is like. It's this way that we lose balance and we self-forget the way that we were meant to experience God's love, the way that we were supposed to be a part of that community. That's what sin ultimately is. Or maybe another way to say this is this, that I think by and large, we're not so much punished for our sins so much as we're punished by our sins because we break that divine relationship that we were intended to be in. We break ourselves away from the very source of life and meaning and identity when we fail to trust God first and depend on him along the way. And and just real quickly, as we're about to wrap up, uh, I want to like help you think about what we're talking about when we talk about sin through a few different lenses because sin isn't just like breaking rules along the way, but there's actually uh, a few different ways that we can fall into sin. Probably the most obvious and the thing that you've heard about along the way is the idea of personal sin, right? When you do something that breaks that shalom. And this can be as simple as cutting somebody off in traffic or telling a little lie along the way or cheering for the Patriots. Like you can mess up in all kinds of little ways. And in fact, there was this study uh, that a researcher, a guy named Dan Arley did uh, to try and understand like why do some people lie and cheat along the way? And basically what he did is he went to college campuses and he offered to pay students uh, to solve some math problems and he would pay them for as many as they could solve in five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, he instructed the students that they could take their paper with all their answers and drop it into a shredder so nobody would know, right? Nobody would know. It was just on the honor system that they had to self-report how many problems they got right. What he didn't tell them is that the shredder didn't actually work. So they turned in their paper. And what Dan found is that most students would report solving six problems when, in fact, they actually solved four. They would, like, not lie dramatically, just a little bit. Right? Just a little lie. And after testing uh, 30,000 people, Dan found only 12 really big cheaters who, who ripped off uh, a whole bunch of money. They stole a total of $150, okay, these big cheaters. But the 18,000 small cheaters that he found collectively stole around $36,000. 
And so see, here's the thing. He did this research, and he did it all around the world, actually, and discovered that the results were basically the same across cultures. And what he concluded is that most dishonesty happens among ordinary people who think of themselves as basically honest. Right? It's just two problems. It's just a little lie along the way. But when added together, that little dishonesty had a huge impact. And most of the problems faced by the human race are not caused by the big outliers. Right? It's not caused by the psychopaths of the world. Our problems are often rooted in the lives of typical, ordinary people who find ways to rationalize our bad behavior, right? who find ways to just be a little off, and we think of ourselves as good while being just a little bad. And collectively, it leads to all kinds of big issues. And here's what I would say. I'd say that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Right? It's just a little off, and it's what happens with us. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, right? All of us are guilty of being a part of this, me included. Personal sin impacts all of us. But we can be tempted sometimes to, to focus on personal sin and miss that there's another way that we can miss the mark together. And that's through the practice of what I would call communal sin. When it's not just individuals making dishonest or, or choices that are off from what God wants, but sadly, as we continue through the story of God, the impact of sin, of this fracture in the world, grows and grows and grows. And what starts with the initial disobedience of Adam and Eve eventually expands to family violence and eventually moves to this massive corruption. And then there's this thing called the flood, right, where the world gets so crazy, God's like, I gotta start over. Like, it's too bad. And all of this demonstrated this continual move away from God's shalom, and there's this story, uh, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, there's a story uh, of this tower that people started to build, the Tower of Babel, which may be the earliest example we have of communal sin. And we see this group of people coming together to try and create their own vision for human flourishing. And here's what the text says. It says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the face of the earth. See, God commanded humans to, to multiply and, and to spread and to flourish. But in Genesis 11, we see this account of people who collectively decide they're going to forge their own destiny. They're going to make their own way apart from God. And they don't, don't want to be scattered away. They want the rest of the world to be so impressed with their tower that nobody will try and mess with them at all. And they don't believe that God is big enough to take care of them or strong enough to take care of them. Instead, they collectively believe that they knew better. And here's what uh, Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says about this in his uh, study, Genesis for Everyone. He says that God's unease at this building project, at the Tower of Babel, it, it focuses on its constituting a kind of assertion of independence, opening up the further possibility of more independence, right? People want to go their own way. And the issues parallel those of Adam and Eve, but the story considers them at the level of a people, not just an individual or a married couple. And look, this might make some of us uncomfortable because of some of the things we've been through the past few years, right? When you talk about systemic injustice or systemic oppression, that's become a political thing for some reason. But like, here's what I would say. Like, if you simply do the math, right? If people can miss the mark, then doesn't it make sense that when people who miss the mark get together, we collectively might also miss the mark? Like, like along the way, we might make mistakes in the systems that we build, in the world that we try and make. And what happens when I'm referring to communal sin is when people uh, in other communities suffer as the result of our actions. That would be communal sin because it's breaking that shalom. It's breaking God's intention for the world. Building systems that benefit some people by taking advantage of others would be a communal sin that breaks God's intention for the world. Uh, it, it could include harming our environment, right? Not caring for God's creation. That's a piece of the puzzle along the way. 
Communal sin can include profiting off of products that aren't sustainable. Uh, There's all kinds of ways that this can play out, and I'm not here to offer all the solutions or my opinions about what we do about those things. But I'm here to tell you that, like, it's important for us, even if it's unseen to the offender, right? Each time we face these things, people face consequences for communal sin. Somebody suffers on the other side of a group of people who choose to get their own way. And, And so if this is all true, Right? If we live in this world that was intended to be good, but it got broken along the way, and now we're all a part of it personally and collectively, what do we do? Well, for centuries, the church has responded through a practice known as confession. And if you're like weirded out right now, there's no booth today. Okay? Like, I'm not going to go sit down and invite you all one by one or anything like that. But this practice of confession is actually one of the longest standing practices of the Christian faith. It's this practice when people would gather together and go before God and invite him to search our hearts to reveal to us the ways that we're a part of the problem, to to reveal to us the sin that is in us along the way. And it's about us being honest to God about the ways that we fall short. And and so, again, we're all guilty of this, right? Personally and collectively, we all fall short at some point along the way. But here's what John, who knew Jesus personally and and wrote about his life and later, later wrote to church communities, here's what he said about this practice of confession He says, if we confess our sins, God is just and faithful and he'll forgive our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. And and so here's what we're going to do as we wrap up today. We're going to have a little lab session in the room, okay? And and again, I'm not going to make you like stand up and tell your neighbor or anything like that, but we want to give you space to actually like open up your heart to God and to be honest to God about that brokenness, about that sin, about that missing the mark that may have crept its way into your life. Whether it's a personal thing that you've done, right, that little lie that you told that led to a lot bigger consequences, whether it's something that you've been a part of, a group of people who act or think or behave in a certain way that that puts down others. We all are a part of the problem. We're all a part of the equation. But here's the beautiful invitation. On your way in, uh, hopefully you saw uh, we had communion cups set out. And if you want to grab that right now, uh, if you don't have one of these, throw your hand up and our team will be glad to get you one of these. The beautiful invitation. Uh, yeah, there's one up here if we could get it up there. Uh, the, the beautiful invitation of Jesus is that even though you've sinned, even though we're all in this together, we can still come to him. And God is in the business of not leaving us broken. But if we confess as we come to him, He rebuilds and he restores and he brings us back into that shalom project that he always wanted. And so we're going to give you space. The band is going to sing a new song over you. If you grab onto the words, you're welcome to sing out. But as we take these next few moments, I'd invite you to take these elements of communion, this bread and this juice that's meant to represent Jesus' body broken for you and the new life he wants you to have. And I invite you to reflect first on your brokenness, on the ways you've been a part of the problem, And then as you take and you eat that bread, receive God's forgiveness for the role that you've played in the brokenness of the world. And then on your own time, you can drink the juice as well. And as you drink that in, imagine that you're actually receiving your new identity from God, a new identity that reflects the original intent that you are somebody loved by God and invited to be a part of the restoring of this world the way that God always wanted it to be. So take some moments on your own, reflect, confess, And then when you're ready, receive the elements as we together turn to God in response to the state of our world and the state of our own hearts. I look round and all I see Burning 
Mountains bare and trees Hopelessness is starting to wreak havoc Son of man, I know you see The deepest depth unknown to me You have planted seas among the ashes You rebuild, you restore All that's broken From the
Would you guys pray with me? God, uh, this conversation, like so many, has been complicated and hijacked in a lot of ways. But just together as people with open hearts, we want to confess to you that we are all a part of the problem. God, all of us have sinned personally. We've made decisions that hurt others, that put others down, that don't respect others, that don't reflect your shalom vision for our lives. And God, together, we confess that we've sinned communally as well, that we participate in systems and, and beliefs and structures that can put down entire groups of people, sometimes without us even knowing it. And God, we confess and we name that that's wrong. We receive your forgiveness. And God, we invite you to reshape us and to remake us into the people that you've always wanted us to be. So God, help us not to view sin as this list of rights and wrongs or do's and don'ts, but help us to understand that all of this is about us living in right relationship with you, us staying connected to you, and to loving the people around us in the same way that you love us. So God, help us to grow in that way as we continue on from this space. We pray and we ask all of that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.